Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 14, 25 through 33. Luke 14, 25 through 33. If you are able to, please stand as I read. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is God's word for us this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning again. Um, for those of you interested, I'll be doing a car wash later. And I'm thinking of writing a book today, too. And marital counseling, 5 p.m. So come one, come all. Uh, it's great to see all you saints here. If you're new, my name is Dave Lundberg. I'm a pastor here. Um, uh, Jeff, our, our lead pastor, had neck surgery, and it went great, and he's just healing up. So your prayers are just still appreciated, and uh, it's just wonderful. I've heard from so many of you who are praying for him, and just please keep it up. Uh, we have a lot to get through, so I want to go ahead and dive in, but let's ask the Lord for help first. Father, Lord, we, we need your help by the Holy Spirit to... Help us to discern these truths. You have, you have done so much in our lives already by illumining your, your gospel message to us. God, as we, I can look out and see all these saints, these are all people whom you have changed. Whom you have saved from the pit. And Lord, it is such a blessing to be able to stand up here and present your word to them this morning. I pray, God, that you would change us through this message. Lord, help us to remember what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're continuing in our series called Why GCF Exists. Um, we've learned that GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, right? Through way of uh, expositional preaching, congregational singing. Jeff went over those a few weeks ago. We are supposed to learn about gospel-centered evangelism last week, but God had other plans, apparently, with the freezing rain. So um, he'll be able to preach that when he's, when he's back. So today our focus is on discipleship. The GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered discipleship. Now, naturally, when we hear a sermon about discipleship, right, we could probably expect to be in Matthew 28, where Jesus institutes the Great Commission, after all, this is the church's mission, right? And if you're a Christian, you should be pretty familiar with this section of Scripture to go and make disciples of all nations. But a disconnect, I think, could occur if we become too popular with this passage, right? We can sort of become indifferent about what it means to actually be a disciple or what it's really calling us to do. And I think people can sometimes... Think about discipleship as if it's segmented. And what I mean by that is people think it pertains to non-believers. And Christians can think something like this. Well, I've become a disciple. I've accepted Jesus. I've become a disciple. So the command is really more evangelism-driven, right? The Great Commission is a call to make converts. This type of thinking then only leads to churches putting all their eggs into the evangelism basket, focused only on getting unbelievers through the door, which leads to 
all the sheep, the beautiful sheep they have under their roof, malnourished, not getting the nutrition that they need to continue to grow. So yes, the Great Commission is evangelistic, absolutely. But we must not think it stops there. In fact, I would argue that the driving factor, if we're talking about what's driving the Great Commission, is more around lifelong sanctification of a saint than it is making new converts. But all things considered, the Great Commission should never be looked at as an either-or. I've heard a lot of people debate on this as if it's either one or the other. It must include both evangelism and it must include saints going deeper into sanctification, growing in the Lord. So as we look at discipleship this morning, I want to emphasize more what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus. We are a church full of disciples. So if we exist to glorify God through gospel-centered discipleship, then what does that practically look like for us? How does it mold and shape us here at GCF? So before we dive into this, I want to first reiterate, go back to why GCF even exists in the first place. Jeff previously mentioned that to say something exists gets right to the heart of its reason for being. Right? We know organizations all have a mission statement. They, they all have a purpose. Tesla is committed to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. General Mills is committed to serving the world by making food people love. And Amazon apparently wants people to never have to step foot in a store ever again. And as a bonus, they want you to build giant forts with all the cardboard boxes they give you. So when it comes down to a little church like ours, a beautiful little church, why do we exist? What is our reason for being? Well, naturally, we're a Christian church, so we exist for Jesus Christ, right? And that alone makes our reason for existence completely different than that of an organization. So I wanted to make that clear first. See, typically the key factors that drive a business are things like cash, assets, profits, and growth. But GCF, we're not committed to become a globally known brand. Right? We don't even want to become a popular brand here in Spokane. I mean, we do want our neighbors to like us around here, but that already got shut down the first couple of weeks when we got a couple of one-star Google reviews. <laughs> Apparently, they didn't like worship practice. And Jeff and I, Pastor Jeff and I, we're not looking to become celebrity pastors. Our elders aren't giving up their time to have all these meetings to strategize how we can increase our profits year over year, how we can keep the shareholders happy. No, our purpose is pretty clear and straightforward. It's pretty easy to grasp. It's to glorify God. GCF exists to glorify God. That's our aim as a church. Because God's glory should always be the goal, right? For every Christian. It's the purpose in all things throughout all of creation. We know God created man in our amazing universe for his glory. God chooses a people to be his own possession for his glory. Amen. We see God work through earthly kings who we see as powerful for his glory. And God redeemed us all for his glory. Everything that is done on earth or in heaven is done for the sake of God's glory. And this is exactly what Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So the pastors and elders here at GCF, we created our mission statement to ensure that our aim, that our goal, that our purpose in everything that we do is to bring glory to God. And all you saints have a part to play in this as well. So this should be all of our aim here at GCF, right? That as a church body, we want to glorify God. And we seek to do that through four means. Worship, that is centered on the gospel. Evangelism, that is centered on the gospel. Discipleship, that is centered on the gospel. And community, that is centered on the gospel. So maybe you're tracking with me, right? You're thinking, okay, this makes sense. You're a church. Naturally, you want to evangelize. Naturally, you want a nice, strong community. You guys want to gather and worship. That's great. But what, what's up with all this gospel-centered stuff that's just slathered all over your mission statement? What's that all about? Well, it's another way to say that we want to glorify God 
the way he wants to be glorified. We want to glorify God the way that he instructs us, the, the way that he tells us inside of his word, with Jesus at the center of all of it. See, we don't want just community. We want community that's centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like we see in Acts, that we see in the scriptures. Jeff talked about this a couple weeks ago. We don't want to just sing songs just to sing. We want to sing songs that are centered around the gospel, songs that remind us of what Jesus has done, of who God is, just as we see in the scriptures. And this is a very important distinction to stress because if we remove the gospel from the equation to any of these, our mission completely changes. For example, if we look at discipleship, we have to be reminded that discipleship is not a Christian word or a Christian idea that's just foreign to the outside world. Right? Discipleship exists outside of the church. If you look up the word discipleship, it can simply be defined as a student who follows a leader and their teachings. A student who follows their leader and, and their teachings. So discipleship can apply to Star Wars, where young, whiny Anakin Skywalker is a disciple of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then he switches allegiance to be a disciple of the Sith Lord. So a standard plain Jane disciple, then, is anyone who becomes a student by learning under a teacher that they want to become like. Chef's choice. They get to choose, right? Well, now add the gospel back into discipleship, and we see that a biblical disciple is not just a student of any mix of teachers or teachings. It's based solely on the student's preferences in that case, right? The student gets to choose what they want to become based on their preferences. No, a biblical disciple is a lifelong learner. A lifelong learner. It's committed to learning and being devoted to one and only one master. And that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is who initially called the student to follow them. There's a big distinction. So disciples of Christ are to follow in Jesus' footsteps while on this earth, which doesn't then give room to give allegiance to anybody else. Right? We're not to become students of worldly teachings if we're disciples of Christ. And this is something we have to be reminded of often because it's too easy to slowly drift from being discipled under gospel teachings to that of the world. Right? This requires constant introspection and asking ourselves the right question, not am I being discipled, but who or what is discipling me? This week, yesterday, today, who or what are you following and becoming a student of? Who's discipling you? Is Christ your master, but you stray every now and then to get a little extracurricular from other teachers on YouTube or Twitter, wanting to fall under their teachings? Or maybe Jesus is your teacher, but you find yourself hopping on other buses to go on field trips to places Jesus would never go. Or places Jesus forbids. I don't know if you've ever taken a timeshare trip down to Mexico, like a Mexican resort. If so, you'd be very familiar with what you encounter the minute you get off the plane. Before you even get a chance to look around and breathe, you're bombarded. Bombarded by hordes of salespeople. Right? And they want you to sign up for their tour. They want you to get in their car. They want you to stay in their resort. It's so bad that the company you book with, before you even take your trip, they have to give you very specific instructions on what to do when you land, <laughs> right? Here's your guide. This is what he'll be wearing. This is the sign he'll be holding. And this is exactly where you can expect to find him. And what's crazy is even after you find your guy and you're following him through the airport, you're still being lured and called upon by all these people saying, we can give you a better deal than him. Leave him 50% off. Does this sound like what it's like to be a disciple of Christ in 2024? Trying to follow Jesus while being lured every which way to get a better deal somewhere else? And living in the age of the internet, we have to be more on guard than ever because with the stroke of only a few keys, we can become students to any master we want. Any time, any place, on nearly any device. Be on guard. And now that the world has been more connected than it's ever been, there are no shortage of teachers who would love to disciple you. And they don't care 
who you're following. They have a better deal for you. Brothers and sisters, this includes inside the church. Maybe more so. As popularity increases with Christian things like mega church pastors, those popular book authors that we love, musical artists, famous podcasters, right? This all requires a heart check to ensure that we're not being discipled into the image of these pastors or into the image of these artists, that we're not trying to become like them, but that we're being discipled into the image of Christ. So we must all be on guard, striving towards gospel-centered discipleship, being lifelong learners of Jesus Christ and following in his footsteps no matter what comes our way. So GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship. Our first point is a gospel-centered disciple is devoted to learning and guarding the teachings of Jesus. A gospel-centered disciple is devoted to learning and guarding the teachings of Jesus. So simply put, a disciple is a devoted learner who guards the gospel. Three very important words that we're going to unpack a little bit and spend some time on. So first, a disciple is devoted. Disciples devoted. Contrary to popular belief here in America, deciding to follow Christ is not just a simple one-time decision. Right? I said the prayer. I did the thing. Now I'm a Christian. If you are to follow Christ, you're committing to be like him. And this requires you to have to abandon your mission and instead commit to his mission. Right? This is an allegiance that can cost you everything. Do you get that? Do you remember what happened when Jesus called you and what he's expecting? Look with me at Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Here Jesus is setting the expectation that if you are to be his disciple, if you're going to walk in his footsteps and follow him, it will not lead to a life of ease and comfort. Right? Foxes and birds have homes. They have sanctuaries that provide them comfort, security, and safety. Well, Christ wasn't stopping at a Marriott that night with the disciples so they can get pampered and get a good night of sleep before they head out to the next town. Well, he's setting fair expectations that there's not a lot of worldly glamour that comes with following Christ. He's on a clear mission. If you're going to join in on this, it's going to require urgency, the same urgency he has, and full allegiance and full devotion to whatever he calls you to do. Here we have an example of someone basically saying, Lord, I'm all in for following you. Sign me up. I'm excited about this. But now, not the best time. First, let me take care of some personal affairs. I got some things I started before you got here. I need to finish up. A little, few other things to do, and then I'm all yours. Perhaps this sounds familiar to you. Right? Someday I'll give my all to Jesus. Right, right now I'm giving a, about a solid 35%. It's better than nothing. I'm sure he appreciates that. You know, I just have too much going on right now. I have all these other things to take care of. And I can see when the kids get a little older, get a little more free time, I can invest in serving or do some other things. Church in Jesus sounds like something I'd like to get serious about. I like what it's all about. I like the idea of community. But at this moment, it's just not my top priority. I've got a lot of things going on. R.C. Sproul bluntly comments on this. He says, if you don't want to follow Jesus as a top priority in your life, he doesn't want you as a disciple. If you don't want to follow Jesus as a top priority in your life, he doesn't want you as a disciple. This is what Jesus is getting at here in this text when he says that those who look back after putting their hand to the plow are not fit 
for the kingdom of God. See, historically, plowing was a very tough job because it required a giant hunk of metal and an animal. It required a lot of concentration. So the plowman had to not only control the animal that pulled this heavy plow, but he had to guide it in a way that would make these straight trenches, one after another, so you could plant seeds. And so a plowman who looks back while trying to dig these super straight trenches that are consistent, what's going to happen? It's going to be crooked trenches all over the place. It's going to bury, fill up the ones that you already did with dirt, and it's all for nothing. It's all going to be useless. So imagine you have a couple acres. You want to hire someone to dig some trenches so you can plant. You walk out eight hours later, and there's just intersecting trenches and ditches everywhere. What are you, what are you going to think? I hired the wrong guy for this type of job. This dude is not fit to be doing this type of work. Go back to school. Maybe get into a different line of work, right? A heart with divided allegiance is very, very far from the biblical model of discipleship. This was very humbling for me to have to even be reminded of this week as I'm studying this. A half-committed heart is not what Jesus is looking for. A half-committed heart is the wrong fit for what's required to be a disciple of Jesus. And if you think about it, this isn't a gotcha. It's not fine print that Jesus doesn't want to publicly disclose. I mean, he puts it all out there. He sets very clear expectations. If you want to be my disciple, you must put me first over every single thing. Every single thing in your life. I must be your top priority, and this is what I expect So be sure to count the costs if you want to follow me. Think about it. So for those of you here who consider yourself to be a disciple, have you really counted the cost? Do you know what Jesus is asking, demanding, in order to be his disciple? He clearly draws a line in the sand, and you're either to count the cost and follow him, give up whatever he asks, or you reject it. And you go and you live life your way. We see Jesus lay these expectations out in Luke chapter 14, 25 through 33. This is our, our main verse. Now great crowds accompanied, accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we know what Jesus is talking about here is not a literal hatred for your family. But what he's doing is he's using this as an illustration of what you place value in, what you prioritize the most. Jesus has got to be over those whom you would naturally in this world love the most, your family. That's what he's getting at. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is not fine print. So as GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered discipleship, as we look at what the expectations are here, we want to be a church that has this biblical devotion to Christ. We don't want to be a church of half-hearted people. You know, I saw, I saw Fred today at Sunday. That, that'd be great. I'll see him again next month, I guess. He's pretty spotty, right? We want to be all in. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my will and make it thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart. It is thy own. It shall be your royal throne. Isn't that a great illustration? Here's my heart, Jesus, for you to sit on and command. 
This heart is for you. It's for your royal throne to sit in and be my king. We want to be a church where Jesus is our everything, where we put his kingdom first, where we're fully aware of what it's going to cost, but we are more than willing to pay for it. We want to be a disciple who puts our hands to the plow with our full attention fixed directly on Christ and what's important to him. Not looking back to our past life or to what we feel should be the most important and take priority. So a disciple's devoted. Next, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a learner. This seems obvious. We are to learn the teachings of our master Jesus if we want to be like him, right? How, how can we expect to be like somebody that we don't even know? But this is why we're committed to biblical teaching and doctrine here at GCF. And we teach this through several different means. And one thing that blesses me so much about you saints here at this church is everywhere you go, you can expect to see the Bible following along. If we have a men's prayer morning, scriptures are present and open. They're being prayed. If we have home groups, Bibles are open. Scriptures being read and mauled over. We're talking about doctrine. In Sunday school, our children are learning Bible basics and our adults are learning Bible doctrine. Certainly here from the pulpit, our desire is to be a mouthpiece for God, to allow him to speak to you all through his word as I try to just get out of his way. That's our desire. I remember when Jeff assigned New Year's Eve Sunday to me and said, I'm going to have to think of a topic because we just finished our Mark series. And as a newer pastor, newer, newer to preaching, I'm only familiar with yeah, expositing a, a section of scripture, right? And I found out how, <laughs> how awkward and weird and uncomfortable it was to try to just think of some topic without having a piece of scripture dictate what that topic is. Like, what do I preach on when I get 40 minutes to stand up here in front of you all? Just talk about my life? or <laughs> So I remember just feeling uncomfortable and just being like, well, I just want to talk about God. I want to glorify God in how I preach. So I thought of the immutability sermon. I just wanted everything focused on, here's God, church. Here he is. Here's what his word says. Go and do. Be faithful, brothers and sisters. So our desire here at GCF is aimed at gospel-centered discipleship, which looks like every single one of us being a devoted learner like this. It looks like every single one of us diving in Jesus' word, where we recognize that the Bible is the only tool that forms, chisels away, and shapes disciples. So we center everything around it. And this is what Paul exhorts Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So a disciple is devoted and a disciple is a learner. And the last thing we're going to highlight under this first point is a disciple is a devoted learner who guards the gospel message. As disciples, we are to guard the gospel message. This comes from an exhortation from Paul after he passes down the gospel message, after he entrusts it to young Timothy. You see this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 13 through 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So GCF has existed for nearly two decades now. This Valley Church here is still a young plant. We're only a few years into it. And so we have a lot of newer faces coming in. And it brings me so much joy when I see newer folks coming here saying how different this church is. And they can't quite put their finger on it. 
You know, something just seems different. And so what comes out is basically them saying, I just feel a sense of God's presence in this place. Now, please don't hear me trying to boast in GCF here as if we have the secret sauce, right? Or we're the, we're the best church in the town. We figured it out. But shouldn't it be recognized that something happens to a church where the gospel is cherished? Where it's preserved and presented in its purest form? That's something to celebrate. My father-in-law probably takes care of the best care of things more than anyone I ever know. Uh, almost to the point where you wonder if it's a problem. Like, it's raining and he's out there scrubbing his grill. <laughs> and you're like, okay. But this man will polish his grill after every session. He'll clean out the grease on the daily. He's out there with spray and polishing it. And it always looks like it's fresh out of the box. Just years, years later. And men, I'm, all of our grills, I'm sure, just look terrible out there. There's rust all over them. But we're like, hey, it works. So... But even his lawnmower, it looks brand new. And I don't even understand this because lawnmowers naturally get gummed up when you go over wet grass and all the other stuff that you run over. So if it came down to where I needed to borrow a tool, am I going to go across the street to Sun Rental and get a tool that's been dropped a million times, taken apart, probably used as a murder weapon, <laughs> a 50% shot of whether or not it's even going to work? Or am I calling Papa Mark? to borrow a tool from him that I know will be like new, that I know is going to be reliable because I know the great care he puts in to keeping it that way. This is what we're after when it comes to how we steward the gospel message here. See, we want the gospel to be handled with the greatest care so that it can be passed down in its purest form to the next generation. I don't know about you, but I don't want my kids to have to learn a watered-down half gospel that's been banged up, abused, twisted. I want my kids to know the gospel in its purest form so it can bless them and so they can pass it down to the next generation. In his commentary, his second Timothy, John Stott, says something pretty profound. He says, the church of our day urgently needs to heed the message of the second letter of Paul to Timothy. For all around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it, in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. A new generation of young Timothys is needed. Who will guard the sacred deposit of the gospel? Who are determined to proclaim it and are prepared to suffer for it? And who will pass it on pure and uncorrupted to the generation, which in due course will rise up to follow them? Church, do you realize that God has entrusted you with something of infinite worth and beauty. Something that we strive to remind you guys week over week over week. He has given you eyes to see. He's given you ears to hear. He's enabled you to comprehend the greatest message that has ever been told. It's the greatest story ever told and it's yours to behold. It's been given to you. So how are you stewarding it? Do you cherish it? Do you esteem it over all the other things that you place value in today? Perhaps you become too familiar with it, that your care's kind of been indifferent. You know, what was once the greatest thing that changed your life, that you just love so much, has now kind of been like that toy your kid got for Christmas last year. You become detached, disinterested, in danger of letting it drop from your hands all together. Church, you've been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guard it with everything you have as if it were precious jewels. And to be a disciple is not only to learn the gospel that, that it's infinite in value and worth, but as a result, we need to guard it from any sort of impurity. We have got to pass this down in its purest form from generation to generation. And this is what gospel-centered disciples do, and it's what we strive to do as leaders here at GCF. There's been an interesting research project conducted on generational churches who once cherished the gospel. Uh, at one point, it was, they were all about the gospel, but then in the long run, they ended up completely abandoning the gospel. And something like this, you know, raises eyebrows of, well, what went wrong? How could you do that? So the research sought to understand how this can happen, and a trend was discovered over time that showed that churches don't just lose the gospel overnight. 
It's not just an all of a sudden thing where they go from gospel centrality to, to gospel nothingness. It's this gradual fade is what they found out. It inconspicuously happens over the course of four generations is basically around what they figure. And this is how it looks like. First generation, the gospel starts off being accepted. I would say it's like our church today. Right? We're, we're gospel-centered in our teaching and the way we disciple each other. We put it front and center in everything we do. But then the next generation, the gospel evolves into being assumed. So we've been teaching about the gospel for years and years and years. We have the same people here. You guys know it. You know, it's time to move on to maybe some new topics because we just assume you guys get it. We've just been pounding it into you. So, of course, you understand it. So we go on to a few other things. Well, then the third generation, the gospel then becomes confused. What was the gospel again? Oh, I think it's uh, this. Oh, no, I think it's this. Well, I heard, I read this book, and it was this. And then the fourth generation comes, and the gospel is completely lost. It's gone. And I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to see this happen to this church. I remember talking to Mark Williams. He's a, a, an elder over at North, and I remember him sitting down with me over lunch and just saying, Dave, it, that could happen in our church. We can't be naive to think it would never happen to us. And he goes, and the minute I find it does, I'm calling you and telling you to get out of there. And he's right. But if it's our goal to never see this happen in GCF, then how we care for the gospel today will determine on whether or not it degrades from our mission statement. Right? Or if it remains pure and intact. So may God give us the courage and the discipline needed to preserve it, to learn it, to proclaim it, to remain unashamed of it so we can continue to pass it down to other generations unblemished. So gospel-centered disciples devoted to learning and guarding the teachings of Jesus. But as we know, learning about your teacher is only half of what the discipleship process looks like. Because the overall goal of discipleship is not to just learn about the teacher, but to become like the teacher. Right? And this takes us to our second point, our last point. A gospel-centered disciple is devoted to imitating the way Jesus lives. A gospel-centered disciple is devoted to imitating the way Jesus lives. Here at GCF, this is very, very dear to us. And look, we're sensitive to the reality that churches that do value and teach good doctrine who uphold the authority of God's word can sometimes leave a sour aftertaste. We see that. We get that. Leaving the impression that they're just a church full of heady, wooden, or just straight up unloving people. And we see the error in a person who zealously studies to know the Lord, yet lives nothing at all like him. It's a disconnect. It's a huge disconnect. And it's a major contradiction to what a disciple is to become. And because of this, and that because people act like this, I often see the baby just thrown out with the bathwater then, right? Like it has to become this either or. You either go to a doctrinal heavy church and you be around a bunch of joyless, boring, stuffy people. Or you pick the church that's watered down where there's a lot of energy, joy, and people who just love like Jesus. And I bring this up because it frankly bothers me a lot. Because it paints doctrine in a bad light. Oh, we don't go over doctrine at my church because it divides. We don't talk about it. It just makes people not love each other. It pushes people away from wanting to study God's word when us humans are the problem, right? Doctrinal heavy churches that are unloving and stuffy are that way because of sin. They're not that way because they zealously pursued God's word. But that's what it's thought of. I hear so many church leaders even pride themselves on not being a heavy Bible-thumping church where we just sit around all day and stuff our faces with God's word. Instead, we choose to be a church that just focuses on loving people like Jesus. But can't we do both? Is it possible? Here at GCF, we want to do both. We, we, we've seen it. We must do both. And that's because this is the biblical model of what gospel-centered discipleship is supposed to be. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And we recognize that it's learning doctrine. It's learning the Bible. 
that's going to shape and mold us to be like Christ. We can't do that without that. It's God's word, Bible doctrine, and the pursuit of it is not a bad thing. It's the actual agent that the Holy Spirit uses us to make us more and more like Jesus. And being like Jesus, that's our goal, right? It's the end goal of being a disciple. It became a Jewish custom for a rabbi to pursue and invite a student to follow them. This was a very special thing. And uh, the rabbis would go and visit schools, interview students who were around the ages of 14 and 15, pretty young. And they would kind of, you know, monitor and, and see if any stood out to them. Any who appeared worthy enough to be their disciple. So they would interview them, ask them questions. And if a student was called upon by a rabbi, the expectation was for them to leave everything they knew behind. This was a, a big deal. And not only did they leave everything behind, but then they had to take up their teachings upon themselves. This was considered their yoke. The rabbi's teachings that these students were to learn was considered their yoke. And this is why Jesus mentions in the scriptures that his yoke is light. Right? His burdens are easy, and he was comparing the gospel message to these other rabbis' teachings, which laid heavy burdens on their students because they were taught through hypocritical teachings and laws that just enslaved students and drug them down. So a student would be called to follow the rabbi. They'd have to leave their hometown and everything they knew and begin this new life of becoming exactly like the rabbi. This meant imitating them in every single way possible, the way they spoke the way they prayed, um, mimicking their unique mannerisms in the way, I mean, every single thing they were just to parrot. And as the students would leave their home, it, it became customary for others to bless them and say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And this is a metaphor to encourage these young students to follow the rabbi so close that they would just be covered in dust by the sandals of the rabbi. They're just right there next to them, everywhere they would go. And this church is, is our goal as disciples of Christ. It's a good illustration for that because we don't want to just desire to learn about Jesus, but every single word that we take in, we want it to form and shape us to become more and more like Jesus. This means that as a church, we were able to display the same amount of grace that he's shown us to those that we don't always see eye to eye with. Yes, when you're wrestling with doctrine, it's going to ruffle some feathers. But guess what? We're a family, and we're going to have to ruffle some feathers, engage in conversation, and talk over Scripture. But there's grace. It means that you as sheep would be gracious and joyfully obedient to your shepherds, as Christ was obedient to his Father, and that us shepherds would sacrificially serve, protect, and feed our sheep here. That you teenagers would see your need for God and desire to please him when pressures to live like the world start to creep in on you. The husbands would love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives would submit and honor their husbands as unto the Lord. See, to be a disciple is devoted to imitating our master. And brothers and sisters, we should never remove that word devoted from that sentence. Ever. Because if I stand up here and I tell you, just be like Jesus. Just be like Jesus. You would spend a week trying, and you'd come back to me and say, Dave, I can't do it. You told me to be like Jesus, and you have no idea how hard that is to do. I tried, and I tried, and I tried. It's impossible. I can't be like Jesus. And this is true. We're never going to be exactly like Jesus this side of eternity. But that doesn't mean we stop trying. Does this require a lot of hard work? Yes. Is it going to require you to have to sacrifice a lot? Yeah. Is it going to require humility? Absolutely. And so to be a disciple of Jesus then is to be devoted, to be committed to trying again and again, failure after failure. This reminds me of a story of a little farm boy who loved and admired his big brother so much. He wanted to imitate everything that big brother did. Wherever older brother went, there was younger brother just following right behind him. And this got a little bit difficult in the winter season as the older brother had to go out and do his daily chores around the farm. 
Well, following his brother now had to, required him to have to walk in his exact footprints after a big snowfall. And this became very, very difficult because his brother, his stride was much longer. And this little brother's little legs just couldn't match the exact footprints in the snow. And if he didn't, he would just sink in the snow and he'd get stuck. So the author concludes the story with this reflection. He says, only, after only a few feeble attempts, it becomes obvious to the boy and any observer that the elder brother's stride is simply beyond that of the younger brother's sibling. Though he fixes his eyes upon the path marked out before him, though he sets himself to the task with the greatest resolve, and though he exerts himself to the point of exhaustion, the result is an extremely awkward, even comical imitation. However, in spite of his inability to match his brother's stride, the boy's perseverance proves the sincerity of his devotion to his brother. In spite of his frequent failure, it is obvious to any honest observer that the inclination of the young boy's heart and will is to be like his elder brother and to walk as he walked, no matter what it takes. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and we are nowhere near being finished in the process. So no matter how comical or awkward imitating Christ can look, no matter how many times we, we fail to measure up, we keep going. Husbands, this requires humility to say, I'm sorry to your wives. Say, I, I messed up. I'm sorry. Wives, requires great humility to say, I'm sorry to your husbands. Gospel-centered disciples follow their master and teacher no matter the cost and no matter the hurdles that are going to get in the way. Are you going to fail? Yes. Can Jesus empathize with your frustration and failed attempts? Absolutely. And though you feel useless at times, like this little child trying to follow behind the magnificent footsteps of Jesus, will you eventually nail it? Absolutely. Not on this earth, though. And this is why the cross must remain central as we continue to grow as disciples. It reminds us that Jesus can empathize with our humility and our failures. It reminds us that Jesus carries his cross in obedience to the Father for a greater good that he knew was to come. And it reminds us that Jesus died on that cross so that our current failures would no longer condemn us as we continue to try again and again. So instead of having the pressure of feeling like, I only have one shot at this. And before Christ, you did. If you sinned once, that was it. But we no longer have those pressures of having one shot to get this right. And then punishment and consequences come if we don't. Because of Jesus. The cross reminds us that Jesus took all of our sins to the cross. He satisfied God's wrath fully. So there's no longer condemnation for us as we try to grow in discipleship. So remember the gospel teaches you that because of what Jesus did, the pressure's off. Your discipleship does not hinge on whether or not you fail one time. Rather, it's more like a parent now teaching their child to ride a bike. The parent loves you. They're there with you, next to you. They're guiding you. And when you finally get that one little thing down and you try to advance to the next step and you crash and burn... He helps you back up and encourages you to keep going. Remember, the gospel reminds us that not, not only did Jesus pursue us to be his disciples, but he did it by his own grace. He didn't do it like these rabbis were talking about because the, he was observing you and going, you know what I really think? I really think Bob's got what it takes. He's a pretty holy guy. I've seen the perseverance in Ryan, and he can persevere through a lot, so he can be a disciple. Oh, we were nothing. We were worthless. And Jesus pursued us by grace and grace alone. He graciously chose to select us, to then do work in us, to change us, to become like him. So this means that despite the constant failings and through the difficulty of trying to match his footsteps, we will get there. We will eventually get to be like Jesus. What an amazing truth. A student that's been finally perfectly molded into the likeness of their master. 
So GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered discipleship, and may we follow Jesus so closely that we are covered in his dust. Count the cost. Commit yourself to him. Guard and cherish his teachings and never give up trying to become like your master. Let's pray. Father, the, um, just the, the cost of what it takes to follow you can seem um, daunting. It can seem uh, challenging, intimidating. Lord, fix our eyes on the cross. With the promises that come with your gospel message that tell us that is, it is not because of us. It's not whoever wins the race first or who is the top student in the class or the one who sins the less that makes it. It's Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of all of us and those who place their faith in him who make it. Lord, I pray for two things for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray for one, rebuke. God, for any in this room that are giving you half their heart, thinking that that is just plenty to be your disciple, I pray that you would correct their thinking and you would turn them around to give you everything. And Lord, I pray that other brothers and sisters would come alongside them, that they would confess this so that they could have help and support. Lord, let us be a church that is fully committed to you as you have laid the expectations out in your word. And the second thing I pray for is encouragement. Lord, reveal your gospel in ways that are just refreshing to us, God, that remind us that as long as we're walking towards you, that's all we need to be doing, to be patient in what you're doing in us, to be honest with our failures, to be humble about our failures, and to just praise you with all the other saints here in the process. We love you so much, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.